Greetings, fellow Who-gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. Our book today is Doctor Who and the Pyramids of Mars, and we have a very, very special guest. I'm very excited, so we'll get to that almost immediately. Just a quick couple of programming notes first. Last Sunday, right after I dropped episode 26, Doctor Who and the Planet of the Daleks, I also appeared on an episode of the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, which in many ways is the spiritual parent of this show, and I was very happy to join Tony and Dalton talking about Doctor Who and the Horns of Naimon. Now, we are only in late 1976 in the Target books on this show. The Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast is going in story order rather than a publication order, and they are already in late 1980. That's the Horns of Nymon book, which is about four years down the road for us. We will come to that in due course, but in the meantime, if you want to hear me enthusing and waxing rhapsodic about Doctor Who and the Horns of Nymon, which is really a fun and underrated little book, I do mean little. Uh, You certainly must go over and listen to the Target Doctor Who Book Club podcast. I will be posting a link to that in the show notes. Also this weekend, I'm happy to say that Reality Bomb is in town here in New York City. They are doing a live recording of episode 100, and I will have a small part to play in that. You certainly should be listening to Reality Bomb. Please go and subscribe to them as well. But I will be posting a link to that in the show notes after that episode is released. So without any further ado, I am absolutely thrilled and delighted and surprised to be hosting Sadie Miller as my first guest on today's program. So let's get to it. Oh, come on, Doctor. That's worth a smile, surely. What's the matter? You should be glad to be going home. The Earth isn't my home, Sarah. I'm a Time Lord. Oh, I know you're a Time Lord. You don't understand the implications. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. What's that supposed to mean? It means I've lived for something like 750 years. Oh, you'll soon be middle-aged. Yes! That time I found something better to do than run round after the brigadier. Oh, come on. If you're tired of being unit scientific advisor, you can always resign. All right. My next guest on Doctor Who literature is no stranger to the world of Doctor Who. She has appeared on screen. She has written a book for the franchise media, and she has also a role as Sarah Jane Smith in the Big Finish audios. Her parents have also appeared in Doctor Who, both in the classic series and the new series. In a sense, we're talking to Doctor Who royalty today. Sadie Miller, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jason. I met you uh, briefly at Gallifrey One in Los Angeles about three months ago. You and Christopher Naylor, who plays Harry on Big Finish, did a coffee clatch and the way that those work at galley is galley is a huge convention when there's not a pandemic on they have somewhere in the neighborhood of 3500 attendees it was a little bit smaller this year due to pandemic restrictions but typically when you're at the convention it is like being shot out of a cannon you are surrounded by thousands of people at any given time and even if you have extrovert tendencies it can be a bit noisy. So the coffee clatch is just 10 people in a room with the guest, and it's very, very polite, and it's very, very civil. And I just had a terrific time listening to the two of you 
uh, telling stories. So I'm um, hoping we can recapture some of that vibe today without 3,000 people bumping into us. Yes, no, it's uh, great to be able to sit in and chat with everyone. And obviously, after such a, a long period of not being able to see anyone at all, it was um, it was absolutely lovely um, and great to chat with, with Chris Taylor as well, playing Harry. And the two of you were just so polite. It, it, it was really a wonderful experience. So this is uh, nominally a podcast focusing on the Doctor Who books. So I wanted to lead off with a question about your own writing, because you wrote a book for the uh, Lethbridge Stewart series from Candy Jar Books a few years ago. And Doctor Who is very much a print medium, as much as it is uh, video or audio. What was the experience like for you uh, pitching a book for that series, uh, the editing process, and seeing your name on the front cover in a book about, of course, uh, the Brigadier and his related characters? Sure. I mean, overall, it was a, a very positive experience, although quite restrictive in a way, because you're um, writing about a very specific character, but you also have to be careful of any copyright infringement, because I think Candy Jar are allowed to only talk about um, Lethbridge Stewart and some of the characters associated with him, but there are other who characters and villains that you're you're not allowed um, to mention. So that that was a little bit tricky. Um, I think overall the project took about six months, which is really quite quite short for for writing a book. Um, but it was um, pushed pushed through at quite quite a pace really because I was um, pregnant, so trying to trying to get it all finished and done. Um, so overall, it was a really positive experience and obviously great to, um, to to write a book and to have have your name on the front cover as you as you say. Um, but I think going forward, I'm trying to focus now on writing away from from um, Doctor Who really if if possible, um, just because I think I prefer having the freedom to, create my own characters rather than trying to write within a framework of what someone else has created before. In terms of the editing guidelines for the Lethbridge Stewart series, like you say, you can only play in a very limited corner of the sandbox because I believe they only have the rights to characters who were created by those two authors and they only did three stories. So obviously it doesn't give you access to the same broad scope that a big finish might deal with. But the, was the plot your own idea or were you dealing with the list of bullet points that the editor wanted to have covered? No, so um, the plot was was my idea and I, I sent um, Andy Frankamallon, who's the editor and um, creator, I believe, of Candy Jar. I sent him my my ideas and we kind of went through them together and I would send him my, my chapters and he would send them back edited. So there was that element of writer and editor collaboration, which which was really enjoyable. Um, but as you say, it is, it's really hard when you've... Um, your imagination wants to go to places where where it's not really allowed because you've got to be really careful about not overstepping the mark um, and writing about a character that's so well loved and so well known was a bit difficult for me as well just because I I'm not really um, a big part of that that fandom so um, I I didn't want to do anything um, or take the character in a direction that wouldn't feel right to to people who who know him better than me. And you, of course, now have a pretty extensive association with the Doctor Who franchise. You uh, rather famously appeared wearing 
a particular set of Andy Pandy suspenders on TV <laughs> for 30 years in the TARDIS, which I rewatched recently as part of my entire series watch through, which is another one of my crazy Doctor Who related pandemic projects. And you oh, did wow. uh, two runs of Big Finish for their Sarah Jane audios. Uh, probably i think i want to say about 15 years ago now my goodness and of course you are now sarah jane smith in a series of fourth doctor and third doctor audios what was it like for you growing up were you very much aware that doctor who was part of your dna or for you was it something that it was in the distant past and appearing on tv like that was kind of a curiosity yeah i mean i think the cause by the time I came along, my mum had stopped working, really. So it almost came bit by bit. So first I sort of got to know her as my mum and then sort of my my friendship with her as my mum. And then it was like the third thing coming through was was that she, you know, was an actor and had had this um, career before I was born and then sort of Doctor Who. So uh, it kind of came quite slowly. I don't really remember being massively aware of it until I was maybe about six or seven um, and even then it was only ever in the background you know you would go to conventions sometimes and sometimes other children who were interested in the show would would play you know Doctor Who in the playground but it was never something that I was massively um, aware of and I think even now getting older I still feel that I'm not very knowledgeable about it at all. I mean, you know, going to something like Galley, where people know every single thing about the show and about the stories and the characters, it's um, really humbling for me, really, because they know so much more about, um, you know, the character of Sarah, even, for example, than than, than I do. They know far more than me. So um, I think it was just something that I, I got to learn about gradually, really. Sarah Jane has a large run of stories, of course, because she was on the series for three and a half years, which I think is a record for a companion. And then, of course, there were all the return appearances. There was the canine spinoff. There was the new series and the Sarah Jane Adventures. Have you ever been tempted to just sit down? And, of course, you know, with children at home, there's never the time. But ever tempted to just watch her entire run all the way straight through from start to finish? Um, I mean... Over here in the UK, we have an app called BritBox, which has all the Doctor Who's on it now. And I have tried to, not all in one sitting, but I've tried <laughs> to kind of catch up on them and watch them from the beginning, just because it helps for my big finish recording to kind of watch her performance and listen to her voice and all that sort of thing. Um, but in a way, I'm more interested to watch other people because I feel um, that my Who knowledge is so bad, really, that I almost want to start from... Um, the sort of, is it The Unearthly Child, the first one with William Hartnell, um, and then watch it all the way through, all the way, you know, up to Jodie and obviously now um, Judy Gatwa coming in. Um, I feel like I want to kind of watch the whole of it, but um, I think that probably takes quite a long time. I will tell you that I started using the pandemic to binge watch other TV shows that I grew up with here in the States in the 1980s. And I tell you, watching seven full seasons of a 1980s American sitcom in three months is kind of a soul-crushing experience because every episode is the same. <laughs> and after a while, Aww. I was craving uh, you know, variety. And then I realized, wait a minute, I am sitting on the entire run of Doctor Who, which is 10 years older than I am. So if I start right now, I might finish uh, before the pandemic ends. And I started with Unearthly Child watching 45 minutes or two story parts a night. And here we are 18 months later. I am still in the early Matt Smith years. So it is a dedication. No and I sometimes question my life choices. But 
I went through all of the. I've been going through the Sarah Jane Adventures as well, so I'm up to the last season of that. I, I start that in about a week, and I put my thoughts on Twitter and just uh, watching your mom in the role. And I'll tell you, but the Time Warrior was the very first Doctor Who story that would have aired in my lifetime, and it's just amazing that her reign as Sarah Jane and, and my life have just overlapped to such a considerable degree. And I'm almost sad that I'm at, you know, kind of at the end of it now because I only have the, the six final episodes to go. But that leads us to Big Finish. You had been in Big Finish uh, a while back. Uh, how did the idea come about for you to play Sarah Jane in their newest series of audios? I mean, so I, it came all directly from from Big Finish. The producer approached me um, to do the lost um, audio drama, the Cyberman story. Um, and then when I got down to the recording studio, they asked if I'd be happy to do any more. And I said yes. And then I didn't hear from them for a few months. And then suddenly I got <laughs> about five or six scripts through the door. So I was like, oh, wow, it's, you know, it's really happening. Um, so it was uh, quite natural, really. And when... Um, I saw Jason Haig Ellery, who um, is obviously a big CEO producer of, of, of all the Big Finish audios. He said that they um, had only wanted to approach me to do it. So it's very, very humbling, really, um, and a great, a great privilege to get to take on that role. So there was no audition process? You didn't have to beat out six or seven other Sarah Janes? <laughs> No, no, not at all, which is pretty pretty unbelievable, really. I mean, um, I uh, I don't know what they would have done if I hadn't said yes, if, if they would have then gone on to someone else, I don't know. But I almost think that maybe the Cyberman story was my audition, really, because when I got down there and we started doing it and we'd recorded some of it, it was only after that that then they said, would you like to do some more? So I think if it had been awful <laughs> they probably wouldn't have asked them um, to do another one so but no I didn't I didn't have any formalized um, audition process at all really I was very very lucky well fortunately you were far from awful quite the opposite uh, now <laughs> big finish is a lifetime commitment because they have so many series and so many strands and I think I heard somebody once say that they record literally the full audio play every day of the week between their, their various licenses. <laughs> so I don't have the ability to binge uh, Big Finish the way that I've been binging Doctor Who over the last 18 months and still haven't reached the end of it. But I have been able to dip in and out with some of your stories. And what's remarkable is that the first three stories that you did um, alongside Tom Baker, and I want to come back to him in a moment, are all original versions of scripts of stories that ended up getting televised such as revenge of the cybermen uh, the ark in space and of course now that i'm trying to think of the third one it's totally blanking on me ah yes genesis of the daleks so you're doing kind of draft versions of those stories and you and christopher and tom are playing parts that have in a sense already been played on on television do you go back and watch the parent story like Revenge of the Cybermen or Ark in Space before you start to record? And how do you handle it if you are given a line that is identical to the line that your mother had delivered on television in the 1970s? Oh, yes. I mean, I definitely, I definitely do watch all of them because I don't know the show well enough to then be able to differentiate the two immediately. Whereas I think that someone like yourself, you would probably look at this 
you know, the draft script to know immediately how it differed from the televised um, final products. But I, I'm not as on the ball as that. So I've got to rewatch them. And when it comes to something like Genesis of the Daleks, where you've got to record the scene again, I, I try and watch it as, as much as I can and get as close to what she was doing to try and make it as authentic as possible. But um, I'm not sort of as good as someone like John Colshaw who can do it, <laughs> you know, for Peyton, who's, who's really good at um, that kind of imitation. Yeah, his ability to do voices is, is uncanny. Yeah, amazing. But listening to the three of you in in the return of the Cybermen just effortlessly transports me back to I mean I was 11 years old when I first would have seen that on PBS here in the states and for me it's one of my foundational stories so hearing the audio was a profound experience and I am sure you were asked this almost every time and I apologize for asking such a series <laughs> of hackneyed <laughs> questions what is it like working with Tom Baker, who is such a larger-than-life figure. And with the pandemic, are you in the same room, or is this all done remotely on, on Zoom or just recording your own track separately? Sure. So I, I've not recorded with Tom since 20, 2019. No, yes, since November 2019, so just before the pandemic, I've not recorded with Tom since then. He does all of his stuff separately, and then the rest of the cast, we all record either in studio together or remotely, and someone reads in for Tom, and then the editors splice, splice him back in later. Um, so the only time we were ever in the same room was during the... the oh, sorry just kick something over at home apologies um was when we were um doing the cyberman story um and then after the pandemic yes we've never recorded together so it's um it's always quite interesting because tom changes the script because they record him first and he always changes things or tweaks things um and so you even though he's not in the room you can kind of feel feel his energy coming through still and I've heard that before, that it's all recorded separately and is put together in the edit, but you would never know from listening that you're not all sitting there at the same table because the chemistry is just so terrific. I guess that's really a tribute to the actors involved and, of course, to the editing process. You now are also in a line of third Doctor stories opposite, and I may pronounce the name wrong because I've never heard it spoken aloud, Tim Trelore? Yes, that's right. I'm perfect pronunciation. <sighs> Oh, perfect. That was uh, miraculous. <laughs> uh, and what is the what is the recording process like on that? Is that the same situation where you're all recording your tracks separately or is that a little more collaborative? So, yeah, with Tim, it is a bit different. So I've recorded remotely with Tim before and I've met Tim at conventions, but I don't think we've ever recorded in a studio together. But when we're all remote, it's, it's like being in the same room anyway. So it's a bit like this sort of situation where we'll have some kind of link up software and we use something in general called clean feed. And then it's just like all chatting, chatting in the room together. Um, and Tim, Tim is lovely. He's, he's great fun and, and obviously is excellent as, as the third doctor and does a really good John Pertwee um not imitation, but he really gets the quality of his voice very well. And how do you approach, uh, generally, when you're dealing with an original script and not something that has already been on television, how do you approach uh, performing as Elizabeth Sladen? Are you looking to recapture a specific vibe from TV, or are you perhaps bringing in real-life experiences that you might have had, ways that she, she may have used her voice in a certain situation? Yeah, I mean, I think I 
I try and play Sarah as I, I would have played her had, had someone just offered it me sort of now rather than having all that back history. I do watch mum's old Doctor Who's and try and get that vocal quality and um, pacing and the way that she um, created the character. But I do really try and, and separate the two a little bit just because I think it's too difficult to, to try and focus on those two things at once. Um, and you have to kind of go with where the character wants to go first and then bring in that sort of vocal uh, change afterwards. Well, the, the audios are just tremendous fun to listen to, and I only regret that I'm not able to hear every single one as it comes out. But fortunately, Big Finish does um, a very good job of promoting their different lines and offering discounts at different times. So I am slowly assembling the entire collection. <laughs> um, I want to point out that we do have the same last name. Tragically, we are not related because that would be amazing. <laughs> Well, you might be. You never know. I um, I did ancestry DNA, one of those you know kits that you send away, and it did say that I have relatives in um, sort of North America. So you never know; might be distant, distant relatives. I will uh, punch you into the uh, what is it, the twenty three and me, and uh, and see if we have <laughs> have a common link. Uh, although, given that our name, uh, our version of Miller was made up on Ellis Island in the year nineteen o one or nineteen o three, so. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, if you look at the uh, census from 1910, when I was trying to find my grandfather who, who came here, um, it's impossible to find because just about any Eastern European Jewish immigrant who came here in, in a certain part of American history all took on the last name Miller, and they all had the same three first names. So, so finding my family ancestry is a little oh, difficult yeah. <laughs> because there's too many people to, to uh, narrow down. That's very cool, though, that you um, that you know that. I, I never, I've never heard that before. I actually found my great-grandfather, who coincidentally is buried 90 feet away from a great-grandfather on the other side of the family, and standing in front of his headstone, the Empire State Building rises directly behind it. It's, it, it's, oh, wow. it, it's pretty remarkable where genealogy has gotten us, but obviously you don't want to hear about my family tree. Oh, no, um, it's cool. I love it. <laughs> It's so interesting, I think, how, um, you know, we can trace our family trees back now so far and you find so many surprising things. It's very, very cool. But your your father, of course, has been in Doctor Who. He was in uh, Peter Davison, a classic series story. He was in Peter Capaldi's very first debut in, in a pivotal scene. And then, of course, he acted in the Sarah Jane Adventures as well. And I vividly remember you saying at Galley that... Uh, I think you said that your mom wasn't aware that he had been cast and it was kind of a surprise when he showed up on set. Oh yes. I think um, Gary Russell was saying that I, I have to admit, I don't, I don't remember that. I remember him going to audition for it and I don't, yeah, I think he had to go for the audition and then, and then he was cast. Um, but I can't, I can't remember fully the story of, of what happened. I think um, Gary told it, told it better at Galley, didn't he? But um, yeah, I think that my, my mum possibly didn't know until sort of round, round at the last minute, really, um, that, um, that he was going to be in an episode. But he did have to go and audition. I do remember that. He wasn't just um, given a family, her family favour, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> oh. That, that would be a very hard audition to lose. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean I'm not good enough for Sarah Jane? We're married. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
but I, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, with your father having so many characters in universe as well, has he ever pushed to have his own big finished box set? Because there's certainly room for, you know, Dugdale, the audios or the antagonist and Sarah Jane story, the three series box set. um no um I don't think so I mean my dad is 81 now so I think he is quite happy to be sort of semi-retired really and just enjoy being um retired and being a granddad and and kind of having a a slower pace of of life so I'm not sure he particularly want to be be doing any any more audios and stuff anymore I think he's quite happy with his his contribution to um to the universe as as it is you, of course, now have small children yourself, and have you been trying to show them Doctor Who or introduce them to the universe, or are you sort of just leaving it for them to discover on their own? Yeah, a little bit. So my oldest one is um, nearly six now, and he watched a little bit of the Sarah Jane Adventures, but um, neither of them are really that that interested in it at the moment. Um, they're... they're much more keen on just sort of being outside and playing sport and and that sort of thing and they quite like um you know all those youtube channels where families do stuff together and video games and stuff so they've not really discovered um doctor who yet but i'm sure as they get a bit older it might be something they become naturally more more interested in for sure and i would be happy to show them you know my daughter is now the same age that I was when I discovered the show uh, back in the 1980s. And I've been trying to bring her in, but of course she has her very own diverse series of interests. So getting her to sit down and read a book that was written in the 1970s is unfortunately not really in the cards. <laughs> no, it's hard, isn't it? Your kids never, never want to, you know, think what you're doing is cool. They want to do their own thing. So the main focus of the rest of this episode is going to be about the novelization of the Pyramids of Mars, which, if you look at the last time that Doctor Who magazine did a survey, places as number eight all time out of the entire run of the series, which at that point was 51 or 52 years old. And I'm 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 rereading the book, I should say, and in many ways, the book is just as good as watching the TV story, which has always been one of my favorites. Um, do you have any particular memories of or fondness for Pyramids of Mars? And then after that, I want to ask if you've ever had a chance to read any of the novelizations. Sure. I mean, I think Pyramids of Mars, I agree with you, is a great story. I think it combines a lot of really um, key things about the Tom Sarah Jane era that works so well. You can see their fun sort of um, banter relationship. You know, there's that moment where they walk into the room, see the guy and walk straight back out again, that Marx Brothers kind of um, gag. But but it also has such a a scary villain in Sutek, you know, so um, you have that that contrast of a really scary villain and quite, you know, some light, more lighthearted interactions. and I think as a story, it still holds up really well in terms of the effects and how scary the mummies are and the way that they move and um, how slow they are and creepy. I, I still think it um, it has lasted the test of time well. Some of the Doc 2 villains, I think, now can look a bit, a bit silly, but I definitely think Pyramids of Mars um, has aged well. Um, in terms of sort of memories of the stories and things, I remember my mum telling me that Tom was 
definitely in the mummy suit when they say it's him it wasn't a, a stunt double it was Tom and that um when she had to fire the rifle that she really hurt her shoulder <laughs> so she wow. was very pleased she would always moan about that when we were watching it together she's like oh gosh this is the bit where I hurt my shoulder <laughs> you know um <laughs> but I think it's such it's such a, a fun story um and uh yeah it's one that I rewatch along with Time Warrior um those are two of, of my my favourites. And in terms of the books, I haven't ever actually read any of the books. At my dad's house, he does have um, have a lot of them with the, the beautiful artwork because um, the covers are, are just gorgeous. Um, but I've, I've never actually read any of them. And I suppose I should really um, because they're, they're really good stories. Um, so that's given me something to think about for sure. Well, I will tell you that coming up in about three or four months, I'll be uh, reading the Hand of Fear novelization, which, of course, was your mom's final story. And she got to co-write her departure scene alongside Tom Baker. I, I will offer you now the invite. You are more than welcome to come back on the show and read through Hand of Fear with me. Oh, cool. Thank you. That's very kind. Yeah, I would say that Pyramids is absolutely one of my favorites. I've noticed that a lot of my adult interests were sparked by things that I saw in Doctor Who when I was 11, 12 years old, like Egyptology. There's a story called The Stones of Blood, which is um, after Sarah Jane's time, where the doctor is put on trial by these two floating robot judges, and he puts on a barrister's wig and he starts hamming it up. And that's when I realized at 11 or 12 years old that I had a thing for courtroom dramas, and now that's what I do for a living. So I have Doctor Who to thank for a lot oh, of wow. elements of my life. Oh, that's very cool. All right. Well, Sadie, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I want to thank you so, so much for joining me. This has been a tremendous amount of fun. Oh, and for me too. Thank you so much for sharing your, your thoughts with me and about your family as well. And yes, we can always have a, a chat about Hand of Fear when you get to it. Just let me know. Oh, that will be very, very exciting. Thanks again and have a great rest of the day. Angie, thank you. Bye. And that was my conversation with Sadie Miller, recorded earlier. Isn't she wonderful? That was just so much fun to listen to because I'll tell you, I was so in the moment recording that I barely remember it. So going back and listening uh, for the edit to put into the episode, it was like hearing it for the very first time. So it's uh, coincidental, certainly, but as you know, I've been doing my Doctor Who pilgrimage. Uh, you can follow me along on Twitter with the hashtag Doctor Who pilgrimage, DR Who pilgrimage. I just reached the end of Series 6, The Wedding of River Song, and chronologically, the very next Doctor Who Universe stories up. Before I get to the Christmas 2011 special, The Doctor, The Widow, and The Wardrobe, is Season 5, the sadly final season, six episodes long, of the Sarah Jane Adventures. I will be uh, watching those uh, starting tonight as I record these tracks, and by the time this episode is released, you should be able to read uh, just about all of my comments on those last episodes on Twitter. My Doctor Who pilgrimage is slowing down a little bit somewhat because there's just so much other quality television on at the moment to watch, and I only have so much time in the day, especially now that the pandemic is just about winding down theoretically, and I'll be returning to work in the office soon. So we are in the first half of the final season of Better Call Saul. And, you know, as much as I love Doctor Who and as much as Doctor Who is my favorite show, and I certainly spend a significant amount of time each week watching Doctor Who and talking about Doctor Who on this show and talking about Doctor Who on other podcasts, 
Better Call Saul is probably the show. I can't really think of any other TV series ever that has really captured the practice of law so well. Well, apart from the South Korean series, uh, Ms. Hammurabi, which is amazing too, but uh, not quite as much circulation in the States here as Better Call Saul has. When I watch that show, obviously it's exaggerated a little bit, but there are moments uh, in that show that I have lived, and watching that show often is like feeling somebody walk over my grave. It's an incredible experience. That's on Monday nights, and I do not miss an episode, so that means no Doctor Who on Monday nights until Better Call Saul takes his mid-season hiatus. I'm also enjoying, not loving, but I'm enjoying on Paramount Plus on Thursday nights, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. That is the Christopher Pike Enterprise. I've seen the first three episodes of that so far. That has released one episode per week, so episode three was just released as I sit down to record this. I have some reservations about the, the plots and the pacing, but it is a lot of fun. It does capture a little bit of the vibe of 1960s Star Trek, while certainly being very much a modern show and learning all the important lessons about casting and inclusion that the other Star Trek series like Discovery and Picard have given us. So it's no better call Saul, but it's a worthwhile show, and I am certainly going to stick with it for the immediate long term. So, those are my TV viewing habits, but as much as I enjoy Strange New Worlds, and as much as I love Better Call Saul, there is nothing, I repeat, nothing, like Pyramids of Mars. Coming up next, I am joined by the godfather of this show, uh, the founder and co-host of the Trap One podcast, Mark, and we're going to have a sit-down and talk about Pyramids of Mars on TV and Pyramids of Mars the book, and Mark is going to join us for a trivia game. How do you think he will do? It's a trick! That's the world as Sutek would leave it. A desolate planet circling a dead sun. I can't be! I'm from 1980. Every point in time has its alternative, Sarah. You've looked into alternative time. Fascinating. Do you mean the future can be chosen, Doctor? Not chosen, shaped. The actions of the present fashion the future. So a man can change the course of history? To a small extent. It takes a being of Sutek's almost limitless power to destroy the future. Well. We've got to go back. Yes. Mark, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mark, as I always do with you, whenever we're discussing a book, we always play a game of I'll show you mine if you show me yours first. And I think you have me beat. What I'm holding up now is the 1983 reprint of Pyramids of Mars, the fourth edition. This is the very first edition released under the U.S. distribution deal. So it's got Lyle Stewart Enterprises on the back. And it's got a stamp with a Lyle Stewart name on it over the U.K. price saying this book is now $2.95, which good luck getting anything for $2.95 in the States. Uh, you know, yeah. here, here we are almost 40 years since 1983 when this was released as time marches on. I've got the JNT era cover when he had a rule, no past doctors uh, when somebody else is the doctor on TV. It's a pretty good-looking cover. You've got the uh, mummy that serves as Sutex time tunnel, and you have three of his service robot mummies in formation, kind of like they're on an album and they're about to drop, you know, their their, their newest release. 
but you have, I believe, an authentic edition, much more so than mine. Yeah, I see your 1983 reprint and raise you the 1976 first edition, uh, Chris Achilleos cover um, with the uh, with the logo before the logo that yours is showing. And yes. uh, this one has uh, a really uh, a really mean looking Sarah Jane Smith wielding the rifle, about to take the uh, the crucial shot that will uh, will destroy the Osiron missile. Uh, actually, yeah, uh, the the doctor's looking pretty mean and moody on this one as well. He's uh, he's got a fairly intense look on his face. And then in the foreground, uh, again, the really iconic thing from this story, which is the uh, the service robot mummy uh, looming uh, intimidatingly uh, at the front of the picture there. That is the iconic monster, though, because when you think 1970s Doctor Who, that mummy is kind of almost the perfect monster costume because it yeah. doesn't have any of the embarrassing pink tentacles of the axons. It doesn't have the uh, silly space makeup of the Sorensen anti-man from Planet of Evil. And everyone likes to talk about, you know, the bubble wrap actually works in Ark in Space because nobody knew what mm -hmm. bubble wrap was in 1975. But I would argue that the mummy costumes have aged a little better than the uh, green bubble wrap. Yeah, absolutely, because they don't they don't look like a traditional mummy either. They, 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 uh, there's something a bit more intimidating and uh, kind of burly about them as well, isn't it? I, uh, yeah, I, I think they're absolutely fantastic. And we've got the amazing scene of the Doctor dressed as a, a disguised as a mummy, wrapped in all the bandages, uh, which, uh, you know, as we know, that the, the director is Paddy Russell, isn't it? Actually persuaded Tom Baker to do against his better judgment because uh, she convinced him that the audience would, would know that it was his walk and uh, <laughs> would know that whether it was him or not. And uh, Sarah Jane, of course, gets the memorable zinger. It must have been a nasty accident. Yeah. <laughs> it is... I think, though, it ties into the Stephen Moffat school of Doctor Who monsters, because he always realized that the best monster is either the one that you can't see or the one that's face is wrong. So... The mummies have no facial expressions, it's just the blank bandages. On the one hand, that's handy because it's the easiest way to hide the fact that there's a stuntman inside and jeans and a t-shirt, but also it really triggers a, you know, some primal human fear because you're looking for the face and it ain't got mm. one. Yeah, definitely. And they are, like you say, they're impassive like that, and they're just although they're they're slightly slow and lumbering they they they're just sort of tireless and unstoppable so uh it, it was still very effective when they're you know chasing various characters through the woods you know they're enclosed because there's the the force field around the area um so basically it's just going to keep going until you until you tire out and it and it catches up with you so uh yeah there's something about that sort of uh creature isn't there that um you know, it's not going to jump out on you or anything like that, but it's just going to keep coming after you until uh, until you're trapped and uh, uh, and then crushed between two of them, which is a pretty pretty unique death as well. I think in Doctor Who, it's uh, it's fairly memorable, isn't it? It is. You have plenty of strangulations by this point in the series history, but uh, being slammed in between the breastbone of two uh, robots and having your neck broken is pretty horrific. And Terence, of course plays into that in the book because he really goes inside 
the poacher's head, and he really makes mm-hmm. you feel for the guy. And of course, the poor sap's very last thought on this earth is now he knows what his trapped animals that he poached <laughs> feel like when his traps brings about them. Yeah, I think I think more so than in the TV story, uh, Terence Dix really plays into the the fact that the the hunter has become the hunted, like you say. Um, it's uh, it's it's a kind of a well done thing that because there's constant references to his hunting and trapping, and uh, yeah, then he becomes the prey. It's very good. And turning back to the cover for a moment, you do mention that it's a very striking portrait of. Tom Baker on the cover because he is so moody and so angry. This is probably of all the Tom Baker stories, this is probably his most, Oh, see now you're putting it right in my face and I'm kind of terrified. (laughs) Plus I've got uh, Sarah Jane pointing her gun right at me. So now my hands are up. Uh, But this is Tom Baker at his moodiest and most alien. And you know, that very long scene in the TARDIS at the very beginning where he's, you know, talking about walking in eternity and Sarah's trying to knock him down a peg. And then most famously in part three, where he tears into poor Lawrence Scarman and then doesn't even seem to care when Lawrence Scarman is killed. And I'll talk about that a little more later on in the program. But I think that, See, that's not the copy that I have, so I haven't spent a lot of time looking at that original first edition cover, and I think it's a really good portrait of Tom Baker in a way that he's not often remembered now as this serious, moody alien doctor. Most folks remember his lighthearted comedy or the way that he's playing the role on Big Finish now, but that was the mm-hmm. that was the original Tom Baker. That was Tom Baker Mark One, which you know certainly drew me in when I was eleven and twelve years old, having such a bad-tempered hero like that uh, really appealed to me. This is something we, we talked about on Trap 1 recently when we covered the Hornet's Nest audio stories that this is really the last time, that's really the last time an audio that you get that side of Tom Baker's characterization. He's much cuddlier in Big Finish. He's he's more of the avuncular, easygoing, witty uh, fourth doctor that you maybe immediately think of. Whereas uh, in Horns Nest, you still do get the occasional sort of snapped line. And um, uh, and one of the actual uh, the parallels with this, uh, funnily enough, is that because uh, the, uh, they bring the character of Mike Yates back for Hornet's Nest, so Richard Franklin, uh, who a couple of times tries to sort of bring, bring up uh, their shared past in the Third Doctor era. And uh, he immediately just, uh, just kind of uh, swats it away, the Doctor. He's... He's not interested at all in uh, in talking about it, and there's a line in here as well, um, which is a, kind of an interesting uh, part of the book for two reasons. Um, because Terence Dix takes the time to slightly correct the script from Pyramids of Mars, because on TV Sarah Jane says uh, that the um, the pyramid on Mars reminds her of the city of the Exelons, which of course. She didn't actually enter the city of the Exelons. Uh, it was something that the Doctor did with Bilal. Uh, and here, instead, she says, "Didn't you run into something like this in the city of Exelon? Certainly, uh, city of the Exelons." So it's a nice little sort of a uh, little bit of tidying up by Terence Dix there. And then the line goes on to say, that "The Doctor was in no mood to discuss his past adventures, particularly those which had taken place in earlier incarnations." Uh, and that's exactly uh, what, how it is in um, in Hornet's Nest as well, which uh, yeah, makes me think maybe that was an influence. 
And that's kind of the magic of Terrence Dix, because he was there for an awful lot of these stories as their script editor, and oftentimes the uncredited ghost writer. Now, you are mentioning, uh, of course, and you're cheating a little bit because you're mentioning Death to the Daleks, and I understand that you have been discussing Death to the Daleks on somebody else's podcast, too, this week, and not just mine. Yeah, I did. Uh, I've recorded uh, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife on Death of the Daleks, which uh, I think will be out in the next few weeks. So, yeah, maybe it's because that's so fresh in my mind. Um, and this is obviously the, uh, the story that directly references it. Um, that, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it yeah, reminded me of that, that idea that, um, that Sarah Jane references it here. Now, if I remember my season 11 behind-the-scenes trivia correctly... Robert Holmes was trailing Terence Dix as script editor because Dix was busy rewriting Monster of Peladon from the ground up and writing the very first novelization, the Auton Invasion, at the same time. So I think it was Robert Holmes who ended up scripting Death to the Daleks. And it does seem weird in this is season 13 to be discussing a story from a different doctor two years ago and dropping that kind of continuity reference. But if it was Robert Holmes's first work as script editor, and now he's been script editor for two full years, it makes sense for Robert to dip into his back catalog and say, look at me, I wrote this one too. But he gets the continuity wrong, so it's up to Terrence Dix to, to fix it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uncredited script editor on Death of the Daleks, that's right, yeah. And I believe uncredited ghostwriter as well. I think he had more to do with the final uh, product than Terry Nation. Yeah, it's it, it's easy to see. Maybe he's trying out ideas like the the uh, you know the, the the series of tests and traps and things that uh, that he will hone here and, and and polish. Now you have the first edition, which begs the question, obviously, because you're brandishing at me a book from 1976 that is older than you are. So, <laughs> is this a copy that you acquired? secondhand or by swap and how old were you when you read it for the first time you know this one i can't remember i i must I'm, i will have bought it secondhand so it will be from a secondhand bookshop or a charity shop but i can't remember the circumstances of buying it but i would have been pretty young it was uh pretty much after the series ended in 1989 well before that i started um reading the target books from the school library and uh, from that period onwards, I was just obsessively trying to find them and, and read through them. So I would have been pretty young. Nothing really stuck um, stuck in my mind rereading it for this that I can remember from being a kid. But barring a few exceptions, it's it's a fairly faithful retread of the story, isn't it? I think a retread is... <sighs> The problem for me is that the word retread tends to suggest old hat, mm. rehashed, not a lot of merit on its own value. So that's going to segue very nicely into my next question, because when you're talking about Pyramids of Mars, this is not just any old run-of-the-mill story that you watch once and then forget about it, and then you watch it again seven years later for your Doctor Who pilgrimage on Twitter, and you go, I can't recall ever having watched this in the first place which was my reaction to the rebel flesh and the also people. But in terms of pyramids of Mars, I have in front of me, Mark, in case you didn't know it, I have in front of me the year 2014 DWM survey, 
It was the last time they've done an entire ranking of the series top to bottom, and I'm sure they'll do another one now that we're coming up on the very last Jodie Whittaker. But mm-hmm. Pyramids of Mars is ranked number eight all time, and it's only the fourth Tom Baker story, and it's only the third Philip Hinchcliffe story on the list because Hinchcliffe, of course, gets three of the top eight and eight of the top 22 because Philip Hinchcliffe. But does this story, does Pyramids of Mars belong on a list of the eight best Doctor Who stories of all time, 1963 to 2022? It does for me, yes. Next question. Does Pyramids of Mars belong on your list of the top eight stories all time, 1963 to the present? Yes. Last question. If you could recommend to my viewers, if they haven't seen Pyramids of Mars yet, and parenthetically, I don't know why anybody listening to this podcast would not have seen Pyramids of Mars already. (laughs) This is a podcast for deep cuts. Should somebody who's never seen Pyramids of Mars pause pause the tape, run to their TV, watch Pyramids of Mars, come back here 95 minutes later, and resume listening to this episode? You absolutely should. It's uh, it's a near perfect Doctor Who story. Um, you could watch it as a first time viewer, I think, and get really drawn into it. Um, as you alluded to, there's no ropey effects really. Um, so in terms of you've shown it to a first time uh, Doctor Who viewer and, and who might be put off by that sort of thing, obviously as Doctor Who fans, we're not. It's terrific performances, great dialogue, and a, and a cracking story. So we've established that Pyramids of Mars is a stone-cold classic. And Mm. now let's talk about the book. Is this the definitive, and I ask this every time, but I'm going to keep asking until I get an answer. Is this the definitive Terrence Dix novelization? I don't know if it's the definitive one. I think the thing thing with this one is the the embellishments that he makes, particularly the prologue and the epilogue, really really add to the story the rest of it i don't think he does too much with but it's robert holmes dialogue so why would you do anything with it because it's it's absolutely brilliant um the couple of small tweaks uh like you mentioned he he tidies up the death to the daleks continuity it's interesting that really famous scene where lawrence scarman has died and um Sarah uh, sort of berates him a little bit for his lack of compassion and humanity. And it's a scene that I really like because, uh, you know, when she says sometimes you don't see him and then he goes human and the way that uh, Tom Baker turns around and goes human is is fantastic. And I always think the scene in um, Into the Dalek where the 12th Doctor kind of doesn't have any compassion when the, the guy's been turned into nutrients for the Dalek, um, it, you know, is, is a hark back to that. But it's softened slightly in the book because um, Sarah sort of reads an expression on the Doctor's face that actually he's just sort of masking his pain because of the uh, the threat that Sutek poses. He hasn't got time to mourn. He just has to get on it. So it's, uh, I thought that was an interesting tweak, that he felt the need to, to humanize that moment a little bit. You know, it's funny because I was looking for that exact line because I could hear you leading up to it. So I have it in front of me on page 88. Sarah heard the pain in his voice and realized that the doctor was hiding his feelings under a mask of flippancy. And then she goes, all right, doctor. She says, gently, what do we do now? 
that is Terrence, I think, softening up the TV moment a little bit because I'm going to talk about this a little bit later uh, when I read my review out later in this program, but the doctor's reaction to Lawrence's death is not to cry, not to mourn, not even to spare a second look at the corpse. His reaction is to go down the tunnel and offer himself up as a human sacrifice to Sutek in order to stop that missile from being launched. And that, I think, speaks much louder than any flowery eulogy on screen, which you really didn't have time for extraneous stuff like eulogies in a 25-minute Doctor Who story in in, in the early to mid-1970s. So I think the Doctor's actions on screen speak for themselves, but Terrence in the book gets to do this sort of thing, where he gets to soften it up and make the Doctor perhaps a little more embraceable as a figure. And we'll see him do this again a few books from now in Dalek Invasion of Earth. Uh, We'll come back to the theme of Terrence taking a death and making it a little bit nicer and a little bit more palatable uh, for the kids for whom the death of a character on screen might be a bigger deal than it is for you and me, men of a certain age. Mm -hmm. The the prologue in particular I think he's a he's a fantastic piece of writing. It's the it gives the history of the Asirans and Sutek and how Sutek comes to be imprisoned by Horus and the and and uh, and the other seven hundred and forty Asirans. It's written like a kind of epic, not really a fairy tale, but but sort of a myth. The way it's written, and there's no real description of the Asirans or where they live. It just talks about how well he became powerful, and then he stayed at home while the rest traveled and, and developed and strengthened his powers and all that sort of stuff. So it's all, um, there's not much description, but so it, it allows you to fill in a lot yourself, but while making them appear these sort of godlike beings uh, that, uh, that are immensely powerful, I thought that was, uh, that was a really fantastic piece of writing. And what's interesting is you were on someone else's podcast earlier this week talking about the death of the Daleks. I recorded earlier this week an episode of somebody else's podcast uh, the Target Doctor Who Book Club podcast with my friend Tony Witt, who's been on this program as well. And we were discussing the Horns of Nymon. But Terence does the same thing in Horns of Nymon. He adds a three-page prologue about the history of the Skanan Empire. And what's funny is when you think of Horns of Nymon, it's the funny story, it's the comical story, it's the story that is beloved by a certain sector of fandom for its camp value, but it is not in the top eight of the of the 2014 DWM poll, it is not going to be in the top eight when they do their next poll, probably after the Jodie Whittaker era is over. But Terrence takes each of those novelizations and gives a suitably epic and similar prologue about this lost empire in each book. So that's something that Terrence liked to do to let you know up front this is an important story. Pay attention. But what's unique about this book, which Horns of Nymon does not have, and at the moment, I can't think of anything comparable. And you've mentioned this already, so I want to have you comment on this. This is the book where Sarah Jane, after her adventures are over, in between Hand of Fear and A Girl's Best Friend, Sarah Jane, now in 1976, you don't just go to your phone and pull up an old newspaper article. You have to go to a, a main library branch. You have to either dig into the stacks of issues or go into the microfilm or even worse, the microfiche, and you have to find stories from 1911. So for Sarah to go back in time and look up 
the events of the story in the papers would have taken an afternoon. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, she's got a career to raise and a cousin to look out for and a robot dog who needs the occasional oiling. She doesn't have a lot of time to be sitting around in the library when Luke and Clyde and Ranny need her help uh, defeating monsters next door. What other stories from the Sarah Jane era is Sarah looking up in the newspaper on the same day that she spends half a Sunday in the library looking up microfilm from 1911? Is Sarah going back and looking up to see how newspaper reporters of the time covered the android invasion of Evesham? Is Sarah going back in time to see how historians would have talked about the events of the Time Warrior looking at the, uh, you know, a paper written on vellum or a, or a parchment. Is Sarah Jane going back and looking up the events of the hand of fear, local girl injured in quarry collapse, or is pyramids of Mars, the greatest adventure that Sarah was ever in. And it's the one story that she's going to look up when she goes to the library, you know, after the hand of fear. Yeah, I suppose the, the Android invasion, and the hand of fear were, were contemporary were, so she would have, uh, she could have easily accessed those those newspapers and news reports. Um, the 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 time war is the most logical one, but that's kind of like uh, wouldn't been a, a lot of records from that one, I, I suppose. Um, is it the is it Power of the Daleks, the the John Peel novelization that he brings Sarah Jane in? Does it? Um, sort of opening chapter or a prologue to that that follows on from the 10th planet, isn't there? Explaining how humans got the technology to get to Vulcan to found the colony. I think Sarah Jane has a part to play in that, doesn't she? And I think Harry Sullivan as well. I think Harry Sullivan is called in to inspect the ruins of the cybercraft of the South Pole. It's been a while, but I think you'll find Harry Sullivan is also in that prologue. Yeah, I remember it's quite, quite continuity heavy. Um, but there's so there's another little um, Sarah Jane uh, escapade um, in between um, in between the Hand of Fear and the Invasion of the Bane as well. There's also a vignette in the Sarah Jane Adventures, and it's from season four, I think. I just watched season four of Sarah Jane from my pilgrimage a few weeks ago, and the stories kind of blur together. But there's a vignette, it's not connected to the main two-part episode, but at the beginning of part one, Ronnie comes into Sarah Jane's house upstairs on Bannerman Road, and Sarah and Mr. Smith are coordinating the destruction of a Earth space probe that is taking live video from Mars, because the probe, the probe is about to send back live footage of the pyramid of Mars, the actual pyramid in which the Sutek the control relay was, was was stored. So Sutek is trapped in Egypt, but the the relay for his uh, control mm-hmm. mechanism is on Mars. And they see the pyramid of Mars, and Ronnie and Clyde are like, wait a minute, why is there a pyramid on Mars? And Sarah Jane goes, long story. But she short-circuits <laughs> the, the very expensive multi-billion dollar NASA robot because she doesn't want anyone else knowing about this pyramid on Mars and going into it and, uh, you know having to answer the uh, the riddle of the two guardians the way, the way that she and the doctor did. <laughs> but I thought it was wonderful that here we are 40 years later on the Sarah Jane Adventures, and Sarah is still talking about Pyramids of Mars. I think it's almost, you know, her uber story. 
Yeah, that's um, that's absolutely fantastic. I uh, I have watched those, but not for a long time, not since they were broadcast. So that's really lovely. Do you know, well, something that's never occurred to me, either watching the Pyramids of Mars or presumably reading the book back in my childhood that occurred to me reading it this time, is why do they move everything, um, all, the, all the gear and the mummies from Egypt to England? Um, that's a very good question. And I'm sure Robert Holmes knows the answer. Unfortunately, Robert <laughs> Holmes passed away in 1985, so I'm not getting him on this show. Um, but another question related to that, Sutek is in Egypt. Mm-hmm. He's not on Mars. He's in Egypt because Lawrence Scarman, sorry, Marcus Scarman finds him in the Valley of Kings at the beginning of part one. Mm-hmm. When Sutek escapes his bonds and when the control signal from Mars ends because it's been destroyed and he's able to stand up and the hand of Sutek falls away beneath him, haha, why doesn't he just open the doors, walk out into the desert and begin taking his revenge across the river in Cairo? Why does he have to travel down the time tunnel to Mick Jagger's mansion in rural England? to begin his revenge. Well, I think the Valley of the Kings is in Luxor rather than Cairo, but I take your point. Um, I don't well, I, know. I mean, I'm here because I like Doctor Who. I am not here because I'm good at geography. I never promised <laughs> otherwise. Um, <laughs> I don't um, the, yeah, the, so the whole thing, the, um, why when Marcus Scarman becomes um, possessed, they then move all the, uh, say, the mummy robots, the uh, the technology and everything. They ship it all to England, which in 1911 would have been quite a time-consuming exercise. Uh, it just uh, it never ever occurred to me until uh, until I was reading the book this time because I think they make more of it of the you sort of constantly reading about all the packing cases and the things that have arrived, and then the fact that they've had to build that um, that uh, the the tunnel thing that uh, that connects them to to Egypt. I think the answer has to do with resources. You have one of the greatest electrical engineers the world has ever seen, in Lawrence Scarman, who invents the radio telescope 40 years early. So mm. in a sense, from the second the doctor sees that Lawrence Scarman has invented the radio telescope in 1911, he knows that Lawrence Scarman is going to die because he knows that there's no way this man and this adventure, this device survives the adventure because otherwise he would have heard of Lawrence Scarman. So in England, you're going to have access to the electronics that you need to build the rocket. And that probably, again, this is a post hoc rationalization. It probably has to do with you need to go to England for the resources to build the things that you need to launch a rocket and send it all the way to Mars, mm. which is Sutek's plan until Sarah destroys the rocket. And then he has to use the doctor's TARDIS instead. Uh, that's probably it, but it doesn't detract from my enjoyment of the story one bit, nor no. does the fact that Sutek has to travel down the tunnel to Mick Jagger's house rather than just throw open the pyramid doors and walk across the river to Luxor, sorry, and start <laughs> destroying people that way. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the other um, really nice embellishment that I like is the backstory for Ibrahim, that there's this, uh, that the Osirans set up this cult of people to protect the pyramid and stop anybody finding it. Um, and 
that that explains why he's in the house before uh you know before Sutek's been awakened and everything like that. Oh sorry, why he's around before Sutek's been awakened to be under his control, that he's then been uh, been sort of corrupted, thinking that he's actually working for the other Asirans. Um, whereas he's actually working for Sutek because it's many generations later and obviously the the uh, the mission's got a bit garbled. <laughs> the one thing he isn't supposed to do is to let Sutek out or help Sutek in any way. But that was all all quite useful in it, explaining his role as well, I thought. You know, the movie that has the most Doctor Who connections of all time is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The only actors in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade who have zero Doctor Who connection are Harrison Ford and Alison Doody. Everybody else was either in Doctor Who or is the father of somebody who was in Doctor Who. Hello, Sean Connery. Now, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is credited, I think, to Jeffrey Marks. I may have that name wrong, but it was actually written. The actual produced script was written by an uncredited Tom Stoppard, writing under an uncredited pseudonym. So there's a character played by Kavork Malikian, who you know better um, from The Wheel in Space, from a Doctor Who's less-than-stellar black-and-white past, Wheel in Space, not one of my favorite stories, but Kavork Malikian is very good in it. He became a favorite of Spielberg, and Spielberg has this character in the movie who has a cult of the Grail, and he is sort of a, a Middle Eastern, and he starts off as an antagonist, and he becomes an ally by the, by the end of the movie. He is guarding the secret of the, the Grail, the same way that Namin is, uh, is, is guarding uh, the, this, this cult of another secret trapped in a temple in the desert. So, Tom Stoppard, almost certainly a Doctor Who fan, almost certainly has seen Pyramids of Mars. You have to wonder, and of course the character of Namin is probably stock from the Hammer movies and from the, the Universal movies, but you have to wonder if the character played by Kavork Malikian in Last Crusade doesn't have some debt, spoken or unspoken, to the character of Namin in Pyramids of Mars. Yeah, definitely. It made me think when you talk about that as well, the Brendan Fraser mummy films have that cult who are determined, uh, whose uh, his purpose is to stop the Imhotep from being reawakened as well, don't they? I have not seen anything more than the first five minutes of the first Brendan Fraser mummy movie, so that's not my wheelhouse. I really like the first one I really enjoy. Speaking of wheelhouses, before you have to go... Let's play a game, and we're going to play a game of 20 questions. I have selected at random from the internet one single Doctor Who story between 1963 and 2022, and I have the story in front of me. You do not know the name. You do not know the year. You do not know which doctor. Using 20 questions, you are going to narrow down which episode I have picked from randomizer.net. Your first question, sir. Before we start, can I ask what the score to beat is? The score to beat is seven, and the person to believe to beat is uh, Simon Hart because, of course, he crushed it. He got it in seven. <laughs> so that is your score to beat. Well, uh, my thinking here is that just I, my first question is going to be guess a story um, because it's it's a slim possibility but if i if i did get it right then i'd be unbeatable at this game nobody could ever 
that we could have beat that score. So <laughs> you have you have six tries to do that, but then you only have thirteen or fourteen yeah. questions left if you fail to narrow down the real winner. And nobody has lost this game yet, so that's a high risk, high reward strategy. Yeah. No, I'm only I'm only going to guess one story, and then if I don't if I don't get it, then I'm gonna then I'm gonna try and narrow it down. Question number one: Is it the visitation? It is not the visitation. Ugh. Is it 20th century Doctor Who? No, it is not. Question three. Is it a David Tennant story? Yes, it is. Question four. Is Rose in this story? Yes, it is. Yes, she is, I should say. Question five. Is it written by Russell T. Davis? It is not written by Russell T. Davis. Question six. Does it have a returning monster? No, it does not. Question seven. And now this is your chance to tie Mr. Simon Hart's all-time Doctor Who literature 20 questions record. Is it school reunion? It is not school reunion. Question eight. Wow, this, this is, you know, when I listen along to this. <laughs> Although school I, reunion does feature a returning villain. It features Canine, who was a villain in the back half of Armageddon Factor. So that would have ruled out <laughs> school reunion. Question eight. <laughs> is it uh oh man <laughs> is it a two-parter no question nine is it father's day it is not father's day which is not a david tennant story oh it isn't it isn't no oh no oh mark you, you were after a great start you were on the cusp and now you're flailing question 10 <laughs> i am right okay right focus this is a uh, the good news for you is there's a finite number of tenant rose stories and you've already ruled out a, bu a bunch so you're guaranteed to win the question is can you bring it in at under 15 right idiot's lantern wrong it is not idiot's lantern question 11 okay so um is it fear her? It is fear her. You got it. Hey. <laughs> I just it just occurred to me as I said that that Rose and the Tenth Doctor aren't only in series two because she comes back in series four. And I was thinking, oh my word! But only in recurring villain stories, I would guess, because she's only in the end, isn't she? What you need to do is the same strategy that my kid has for Wordle, right? Uh, many people have a starter word on Wordle. So my kid has a starter word, and she plays the same word as her first word every single time. And that rules out you know, a certain common consonants and vowels. Well, last week, her starter word, train, was the Wordle word of the day, and she got it in one. And after that, I made her pick a new starter word. But you need <laughs> to have a starter story for 20 questions. And you need to ask it every time until that's the answer. Because one of these days... Even if yeah. it takes you 241 appearances on Doctor Who literature, <laughs> you will eventually get it in one just by picking the same one story over and over again. So once a story has been randomly selected for this game, is it does it go back into the pot? So is there always the same number of stories to choose from? I'm not keeping records the way that I should of who guessed <laughs> which story and how many questions in which game. So the odds are that it could come up and also it's the same for guess that cliffhanger there's always the chance that the mm -hmm. same cliffhanger could turn up twice because i am not keeping records fair enough 
Yeah, no, I think I think yeah. If it had been the visitation, I, I would have been unbeatable there. But uh, I was a few decades out. <laughs> the five doctors was an answer uh, earlier in, in this series, so you've come close. Five doctors is not too far off the visitation. That's a hard one to guess as well, because if you start saying um, is a certain character or villain in it, <laughs> it's, uh, there's, uh, there's a huge, it overlaps with a, a number of Venn diagrams, that one. <laughs> well, actually, that's the problem that I had the very first time that I played this game with Graham Burke in episode 16, our Planet of the Spiders uh, book. The very first story that I got off the randomizer was Resolution. And Graham asked me if it was from season 11, and I couldn't for the life of me recall if Resolution is classified as season 11 or season 12, because it falls in the middle uh, as a New Year's story. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. All right, well, Mark, thanks very much for rejoining me. It's great to have you as a co-host for this episode. Thank you for discussing Pyramids of Mars and your old, old, original first edition copy of the book, which beats mine, which is a mere fourth edition. We're going to have you back on real soon. And of course, we'll see each other on Trap One in the not too distant future. Thank you very much. Well done, Mr. Scarman. This time there are marks. His late brother must have called. That's horrible. He was so concerned about his brother. Well, I told him not to be. Told him it was too late. Oh, sometimes you don't seem human. A typical of siren simplicity. A man has just been murdered. Four men, Sarah. Five. If you include Professor Scarman himself, and they're made of the first of millions, unless to take is stopped. Know thine enemy. Admirable advice. Yes. Doctor Who and the Pyramids of Mars, written by Terence Dix. Televised as Pyramids of Mars. Teleplay by Robert Holmes, from a story by Lewis Griefer. Screen credit to Stephen Harris, a pseudonym televised in October and November 1975, published in December 1976. The mind of Sutek the Destroyer is consumed with jealousy and hatred. Convinced that all living things are his mortal enemy, he is determined to annihilate all forms of life throughout the universe. Imprisoned at the heart of an Egyptian pyramid, the force of his maniacal evil has been paralyzed for centuries. But now, after thousands upon thousands of years of long captivity, the moment of deliverance has arrived. Sutek's vicious megalomania is about to be unleashed upon the world. Unless the doctor succeeds in outwitting a mind so powerful, it can force him to his knees and torture him at a glance. The novelization of Pyramids of Mars is barely 119 pages, but still are about the most enjoyable, exciting, and surprisingly dark pages in all of Doctor Who literature. The three-page prologue, The Legend of the Osirens, goes beyond what we saw on TV. It gives us a brief history of Sutek's rise and war on his fellows from Phaestor Osiris. It ends with one of those epic myth-making, only from Terence Dick's paragraphs. Quote, The mighty civilization of Egypt rose and fell. Other civilizations and empires took its place. 
Sutek and Horus and the Osirans were remembered only as a legend. Still, Sutek waited in his hidden pyramid until one day... Terence was novelizing the camera scripts from Pyramids of Mars, not the broadcast version. Things are slightly different than what you remember from TV. Dialogue and staged action, especially the filmed location material, much of which was improvised. But he doesn't just turn the camera scripts into text, as he's often wrongly accused of doing. He adds tons, and I do mean tons, of character asides and wicked insights and bits of drama or foreshadowing. When Marcus Scarman breaks into the pyramid in Egypt and sees the face of Sutek, it's, quote, an indescribably malignant face, a mask of pure evil. Marcus is said to be overdressed for the heat because, quote, the year was 1911, and Englishmen abroad were expected to maintain certain standards. When Sarah Jane pirouettes into the console room wearing Victoria's dress, Terence actually tells us about Victoria, always so frightened, always trying so hard to be brave. About the only flaw that I can find in the book, really, is that the phrase, a discord from some blank organ, appears twice on pages 13 and 16. Some enormous organ on page 13, some giant organ on page 16. And then discordant is used again on pages 18 and 19 both. We get it, Terence. The organ is discordant. Collins, the butler, who appears in chapter 2 only, quote, still knew the proper way to behave in a gentleman's household. Chapter 2 also gives us Ibrahim Namin's life story, and makes him almost sympathetic, as sympathetic as the dupe of some malevolent alien power can be. In England, he's said to be in a strange land, wearing strange clothes. But there's the shockingly dock take that Ahmed, Marcus Escarman's Egyptian porter, and his laborers were all killed by Namin in the desert. <laughs> Jeez, Ahmed was literally the only surviving character apart from the Doctor and Sarah on TV, and Terence goes and kills him too. One of the better elements of Pyramids of Mars on TV is how the serial benefits from a small cast, all the guest members of which die one at a time in vivid ways. Namin's death is wrapped up with a sardonic bow in the book, his reward for a lifetime of faithful service, Terence says. Dr. Warlock gets POV in the section of his own death, as we follow his confused and increasingly scared thought processes. Ernie Clemens, the poacher, is given a full backstory, such as why he's allowed to live on the Priory estate, what his relationship is to the Scarman brothers, and who buys his game. His indignance at Warlock's death at the end of Chapter 4 makes you want to stand up and cheer, until you recall how this works out for him. Towards the end, Ernie, pursued by the inexorable mummies, quote, felt like the fox at the end of a very long chase, and, quote, for the first time in his life, he felt some sympathy for the animals he hunted and trapped. Sutek's voice, played so well on TV by Gabriel Wolfe, is described as, quote, soft and ferocious at the same time, like that of some great beast. The voice of Horus, also Wolfe, is, quote, like and yet unlike that of Sutek, its tones holding wisdom and power, rather than Sutek's cruelty and hatred. Sometimes, Terence adds material not in the camera script. On TV, Lauren says that Clements used gelignite to go fishing. In the book, Terence adds dialogue for the Doctor and Sarah to define that, including the words deplorable and, and drastic but efficient. Until Pyramids is out on Blu-ray, I won't be able to see the camera script, but I'm willing to bet that is not a cut line, but rather something Terence added in as an editorial. The Death of Lawrence Scarman which Mark and I talked about earlier, is no less powerful in the book. 
The doctor on TV was memorably indifferent to this death. Terence softens this up just enough in the prose. Quote, Sarah heard the pain in his voice and realized that the doctor was hiding his feelings under a mask of flippancy. Terence also corrects the body count, which Tom Baker, due to a script glitch, had gotten wrong on TV. The main Dr. Sutek dialogue loses a little of its power, as recorded in Chapter 9. Terence gets out of the way without cluttering the page this time, with his own observations. Sarah gets a powerful bit of observational humor, though, as the doctor delays an escape to get dressed, thinking that he'll get himself killed over the silly hat and scarf one day. Huh. So that's how Legopolis should have ended. Some unscripted moments are missing, like the doctor and Sarah's Marx Brothers-style move to evade a mummy, which Sadie talked about earlier. But when Sarah references death to the Daleks, the Doctor scowls, as Mark told us, in no mood to discuss his past adventures, particularly those which had taken place in earlier incarnations. As the Priory burns at the end, Dix adds a comical aside about Sarah's nightmare vision of trying to explain recent happenings at the Priory to some heavily mustached village policeman of the year 1911. Terence lastly excels at wrapping up the story. Sarah takes time to remember all the characters who were killed on the final page of Chapter 12. The bluff and hardy Dr. Warlock, with a particular pang for poor Lawrence Scarman, whom she could remember him looking around the TARDIS with bright-eyed eagerness. And then most extraordinary of all is the epilogue, as Sarah looks up the newspaper coverage of the Priory Fire, followed by one last wonderful eulogy for the story's dead. Quote, The sacrifice of all those lives had not been in vain. The pity was that no one would ever know. Sarah closed the heavy old volume and went into the summer sunshine of her own unchanged 20th century. Pyramids of Mars, the novelization, is short, very short, but it does not waste a word, it does not waste an observation, it heightens the poignance of the story. In short, it's stronger at 119 pages than most books three times its size. I don't see how this can be improved upon. I really don't. Next time, it is a new year. It is January 1977. And it's going to be the last of three straight Terence Dix novelizations, after which we are going to get a book written by a first-time target author, but a very familiar and very welcome name. This time, we are dipping back from the Hinchcliffe era, back to the Barry Letts Terence Dix era, which had been the two books immediately before Pyramids of Mars, but after that there are going to be fewer and fewer Third Doctor novelizations to come in the next several years. So come back and join us as we discuss the January 1977 release. It's easier than finding the one Yarrow seed under three Megampods. It is Doctor Who and the Carnival of Monsters. Join us, won't you? Approach closer. What are you called, Time Lord? Doctor. I offer you an alliance, Doctor. Serve me truly, and an empire can be yours. Serve you, Sutek. Your name is abominated in every civilized world. Were in that name be said, Satan, sad off. Serve me, Doctor. Never! You pit your puny will against mine. <laughs> Kneel. No! Kneel before the might of Sutek. 
In my presence, you are an ant, a termite, a base yourself, you groveling insect. Okay then. Man, that episode is so, so good, isn't it? Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Thanks to my guest, Mark, and special thanks to my special guest, Sadie Miller. This podcast can now be found on iTunes, as well as Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and you can also find me on the Trap One podcast from time to time, including an upcoming episode about Galaxy 4, the animated DVD release. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time we'll be discussing another novelization, and we'll again be joined by a very special guest. Thank you for listening. And whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Thank you.